first of all, I think we're now at a point where the decision to be on the cloud is extremely obvious. It doesn't mean it's obvious to everyone, and it doesn't mean everyone's comfortable with it. It's time for I want to connect the listeners to the best of the best. Welcome to the Evolve Broker Podcast. I am your host, Pat Costello, the co-founder and principal at Evolve MGA. Our mission for the podcast is to bring the insurance industry the best of the best. My guest today is a veteran of the insurance industry, a best-selling author, a TEDx presenter, an executive coach, a motivational speaker. His books include the Future of Insurance series, Do a Day, and the 50-75-100 solution. His name is Brian Falchuk, and he ran claims at his cox prior to entering the InsurTech world with a company called Mentor. He is now the founder and managing partner of Insurance Evolution Partners which is a consulting and advisory firm for the insurance industry. Brian's work has been featured in several top publications like Inc. Magazine, the LA Times, Chicago Tribune, and more. I was most interested in Brian's thoughts on the future of the insurance industry. We are ripe for disruption, and he has put an enormous amount of thought into what is next for us and sits in a unique position where he's actually held jobs, roles, responsibilities in different areas of the insurance industry. He has skin in the game. So I was really excited to chat with him. Without further ado, here's Brian. Brian, welcome to the Evolved Broker Podcast. Thank you for having me on. I'm super excited to have you here for a number of reasons, but I think that um, what I was initially surprised by was Obviously, you have enormous amount of like accolades and some really, really interesting stuff in your bio, but it turns out that you actually used to work with my sister and my brother-in-law yeah. at his house. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. They're both awesome. Um, yeah. Such no, a small world. A Classic insurance. Small. That's insurance, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Can and I've, like, I've been to, I think, Mexico or Costa Rica with your dad or, or maybe both. Actually, I think both. That's impressive. I have never yeah. been to Costa Rica with my dad. So, all right. So now that's weird. I've got a leg up on yeah. <laughs> That's uh, that's super cool. But for the audience that's listening in, can you give just a quick summary of your background, where you've worked, and where you're at now? Because I just think it gives so much credibility to the work that you're doing now. Yeah. No. Thank you. Um, so I've I've been really lucky to kind of get to go around lots of different parts of the insurance industry, different carriers and lines of business and geographies. Um, I started years and years ago at Liberty Mutual in 2000 in like a, a strategy, internal strategy unit, which gave me a chance to see all kinds of different parts of the business and geographies and stuff. And Liberty was like a third the size that it is now. So it was a very different company that I joined. But like fast forward, I've worked at, um, I worked at McKinsey and Company, a consulting company. So I, I got to see even more carriers um, just through all the project work that I got to do and lots of different issues and things in the industry. And then I got into specialty lines. I spent um, about six and a half years at Beasley when they were still really young in the US market. And um, 
it was amazing. Like such a different approach being in the specialist world. And I got exposure to distribution and, um, you know, I had the team that was responsible for going out to see all the brokers and driving business in. Um, and then I ended up taking over us operations and kind of helping with the back office and, and the underlying processes around things. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the like early days of data and insights or using Excel and pivot tables. Cause we didn't have more advanced tools yet. Um, but it, it was an amazing experience and um, getting to be part of something that early that was growing that much. And that was like early days of cyber insurance. So oh, yeah. it's pretty, like, it was, I thought it was really exciting. Um, very cool to see how things have developed. Yeah. I have to say from my, my cyber insurance perspective, Beasley was one of the pioneers. And when we yeah. were coming to the West Coast with our uh, evolved cyber insurance product, Beasley was like the 800 pound gorilla that like everybody knew everybody was aware of. And it was, um, it's just really interesting to see where the market's at today, but that like CFC and Beasley were, were two names that I think were the pioneers back in the day. Yeah. Well, the whole, like, basically the whole market is about the breach response part of it. And that was something that we pioneered. And what was funny is like, when that first came out, it was a total dog. Mm-hmm. No one would buy it. And and so we were like, we've made a huge mistake. But like anything insurance, just took a little while. And so sort of like usually kind of two sales cycles. And I think we started to see traction. And of course, now it's like the old insure, um, InfoSec towers that people used to buy if they bought anything. Mm-hmm. It's really rare that you find that maybe in like the mega corporations where there's a lot more self-insurance involved. Um, but basically most cyber policies for any size business are breach response. And mm-hmm. that's the part that really matters. And that's where actually like most of the payments end up happening is paying for and coordinating that vendor delivery. So yeah, it was kind of cool, like being there in the early days and like, oh God, we made a huge mistake. This isn't, you know, this isn't a thing, but you just, you gotta, I mean, it, it speaks to kind of sticking with stuff and, mm-hmm. um, not taking early rejection or, or failure to get traction and, and just look at, is there another way we need to go about this or just keep trying, yeah. um, you know, finding. You had a number of roles at Beasley and then did you go from Beasley to Hiscox? Um, I took a brief detour in medical malpractice for just under a year, okay. um, which is a, a weird and difficult subsegment of the market. And uh, for me to go from Beasley to MedMal was a much harder transition than I thought because Beasley was so entrepreneurial and opportunity grabbing and really non-hierarchical in a Mm -hmm. lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, Like human nature, hierarchy and politics will set in, but it was like everyone is trying to contribute to pushing ahead. And the company I went to, which was a rock star in MedMal, was just very like super hierarchical and Mm. um, was so overcapitalized. I think that that takes away some of the hunger that you need to keep pushing. And like Beasley has lots of capital as well, but they never lost their hunger. And I really love that. And it's the kind of thing that um, for anyone who's been in the startup world, like you can hear about these things, but until you're living it, it's very hard to really understand whether that clicks for you. And if it does, you would never want to be in a different environment. And that's why when the opportunity at Hiscox came along, mm-hmm. um, it was such a no brainer for me because yeah. it was like, all the things I loved about the early version of Beasley that I, I had joined um, and just so much more. And I knew the CEO we had met when I was at Beasley. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, yeah, I went from, from Beasley 
little detour in MedMal and then to Hiscox to run claims, which that was my first job in claims was the chief claims officer, which I always tell people, like, don't ask me to speak to young adjusters coming up in the industry about their career because yeah. my story is such a, like, it's like, you're doing the wrong thing. Don't, uh-huh. don't put uh-huh. your time in, just come in as the boss, which doesn't, <laughs> not usually the option people have. That's so funny, Brian. So another commonality that you and I share is that um, I was also in MedMal. It's actually where I started my career. I was working for Ace um, in the MedMal department, focused on um, smaller healthcare organizations. And it's, uh, I mean, they had a great training program at Ace. I got to learn a bunch of different lines and um, go down the the CPCU route. And so, but yeah, that was my world as well. Um, and then, so you moved to Hiscox and you were running claims, which yep. is a, is a, uh, another invaluable perspective. And then eventually you moved into doing your own thing. Yeah. Right. Um, so I, I left Hiscox to join a startup I was an early customer of and had been advising a bit. Uh, mm-hmm. they raised their series A and wanted me to, to do sales, which is effectively like just going around to my network, like, you know, other chief claims officers that I gotten close to. Mm-hmm. So I spent a year with them, which I think everybody should do some time in sales. Um, you know, we don't, we didn't call it sales. We call it like growth or yeah. chief revenue officer. Like you hear titles for it, but like what we're talking about is sales. And that is such an unbelievable training ground for how you relate to other people and resilience and trying to understand how to message something mm-hmm. in a way that will get people to care. And I think without that, it would have been very hard for me to to leave at the end of the year I spent with them mm-hmm. to build my own thing. And I still do work with them. I, I'm like an, an advisor to them again, but I left as an employee. Um, we got a real salesperson in. And so like once we recruited him, I was like, okay, now I can step back. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, for the past few years, I've been trying to help push the industry forward. So I do a lot of advisory work with different solution providers, with carriers, ton of like speaking and thought leadership work. Um, I've been putting out a book series and podcast series. I'll call the feature of insurance, just trying to share stories of folks in the industry who have come against that same mountain. We all face of like, here's all the reasons we can't change, right? Mm-hmm. You know, regulation, budget systems, whatever else that we all face, mm-hmm. uh, but they've done it anyway. And, and I want that to be a bit of inspiration for us, whether you're a carrier or a solution provider, an MGA, an agent, a broker, we all face constraints, we all face challenges. And we're all facing this really interesting period where a lot of the, the mechanisms for change are available. So mm-hmm. like you can rail against those or see it as a disruptive threat, which it can be, mm-hmm. or you can say, hey, disruption is actually how we break out of the like share ceiling norm that we're always caught in where it's like, oh, you know, we got the same 3% of the market just kind of moving around from carrier to carrier or broker to broker, agent to agent. What if we could do something in a way that spoke to people or that was materially different or better and, and earned more of a space in the market instead of just you know, kind of relegating ourselves to share steel and doing it a little better than someone else for a while. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's kind of where, I mean, that's sort of amorphous, but like, that's where I focus my energy is just trying to give people um, those points of view and those ideas to hit them in their context and be like, well, what can I do differently? How could I make this change and do better? I wanted to make sure we went through your background because uh, you have an enormous amount of credibility when it comes to looking at the future of the insurance industry how we innovate, how the insure tech part of the industry is um, 
the, the pros and cons and, and what the rest of the industry can learn from uh, the insure tech segment. So it's, it's very exciting. I think we're ripe for disruption and you've had skin in the game at all these different levels. So there's yeah. very few people that have actually, a lot of people like to comment on the future and like to give advice, but very few people have sat in those seats where they know how the claims process works. They know how yeah. the med mal underwriting, pro they know how distribution works with insurance brokers, with intermediaries, when you're trying to solve for, you know, coming up with the best customer experience possible. So yeah. I, I really want to focus on that and then um, make sure people know how credible you are when we're talking about the future of the industry. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And I think um, I've, got, I've been really lucky to see a lot of different things, different functions and lines and geographies. And I, I think I'm also really lucky just in, in my personality, like I like fixing things. Mm -hmm. So I naturally kind of want to get into it and see where we could do better. But I also am just naturally curious. And um, there's a lot of stuff I've been exposed to and I've learned, but the reality is there's so much more I don't know. And so I try to come into everything that I do with at least a contextual understanding, but mm -hmm. then like dropping any presumption that I have the answer because mm -hmm. I don't. Mm -hmm. And I think that's actually like one of the most valuable things that I look for in leaders is like, what level of humility do you bring to your work every day? Mm -hmm. How mm -hmm. much is it the, the you show versus like the you empowering those around you to contribute to where things are heading. Mm -hmm. And so I just try to look for, there's so much I don't know. And there's so much I will never be able to know myself, but mm -hmm. if I can be around people who are willing to share and just take in and, and absorb that's really enriching for me. And then I just need to turn around and, and pay that back, you know, to the community. Like, how can I help share all the things I'm here? Cause I do get to meet with like a ton of different carriers and solution providers yeah. and agents and just all those perspectives. If I wasn't turning around and sharing back all that I'm hearing, I don't think I'd be doing the industry justice. One of the kind of my mindset on it. Yeah. I, I appreciate the mindset and having that growth mindset, I think is only a benefit. I think one of the coolest things that we brought up when we had our initial conversation, when we we're talking about doing the podcast was the correlation that you made or the analogy that you made about, um, Spotify and taking on the music industry and the record labels and kind of comparing that to the insurance world and some of the complacency that exists in the insurance world. And I started watching that show, that Spotify show. Yeah, 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 I'm watching the playlist. Good. And it's, it's amazing. It's, I mean, it's, it's really interesting to see how stubborn a lot of the music industry was. And yeah. the change was real, the change was there. The, the, everybody knew what the customer wanted. They'd just yeah. been stuck in this old system. So. I'd love for you to kind of explain how that yeah. Spotify situation correlates to the insurance industry. Well, and I think what's funny is like, there was a ton of stubbornness on the Spotify side. And like, if you'd say the same thing about Steve mm -hmm. Jobs, like he's not known for being relaxed and easy to work with, like mm -hmm. he wants his way. And so same thing like with Apple and their push on music. But um, I like maybe they needed to be stubborn because of what they were up against. but. It, it's really fascinating to me because you had this space where like consumers were very clearly sending a message that we want digital music 
first and foremost. Mm -hmm. And because the industry wasn't willing to meet them in a way that they wanted, they sought illegal means, right? Like stealing mm -hmm. the music, getting it from each other. And, and to be fair, like that was a pretty miserable experience, but yeah. As someone who was at college, like when Napster was coming on the oh, scene, yeah. I actually never used Napster, but like people are sharing songs on like shared drives in the networks and you had this, like the university's T ones, like everything uh -huh. downloaded fast. Oh yeah. Brian, I was using, I remember back in the day using Napster. I remember using Kazaa. It's yeah, like, Kazaa. yeah, they, they shut There's one down and another one yeah. would pop up. Uh, right. Pirate Bay is a big thing they bring up in the show. Downloading yeah. torrents. Yep. That yep. was and a big I didn't thing. Understand, like, yeah, half the, half the way say it, but, um, there's something with a donkey in its name, whatever it was, but mm -hmm. like we, and, and every time something got shut down, you're right. Something would pop up because consumers kept trying to find a way to get what they wanted. Mm -hmm. And if you look at what the music industry would do to all of this was to immediately say, no, we've had our business model. That's how we want to work. So we're going to do everything in our power to stop you from doing that. And I completely understand why they reacted that way. They were getting robbed. I mean, it, it's theft. Mm -hmm. But what they should have been saying is like, okay, this isn't okay, but clearly how we're serving you is also not okay. You're telling us you want something different and we now have a choice. And unfortunately for the music industry, they chose to try every single means possible to stop progress from happening mm -hmm. instead of trying to find a way to meet that. De demand from customers mm -hmm. and where we've ended up today is a direct result of that response. So they were so hell bent on fighting digital distribution that they pushed a ton of people into piracy mm -hmm. who stayed there for a very long time. And then the savior ended up being someone they were fighting pretty hard and that's Apple and Steve jobs and the 99 cents per track simplicity of everything. Mm -hmm. And, Apple ended up taking over the music industry. And don't forget, we had lots of other legal options at the time and they all died. Yeah. Like uh, Microsoft poured billions into plays for sure and Zune. And I, you know, like anytime I talk about this stuff at a conference, I'm like, who had a Zune? And there's probably one or two people. <sighs> and you, you subscribe to your music. And everyone's response was like, that's the worst idea of ever. Who wants to subscribe to music? Right? Yeah. Like, Music's our emotions and our times in our life, like we want to own it. And I said the same thing. Fast forward to today, the music industry is basically served through two major distribution uh, players, Apple and Spotify. And yes, mm -hmm. there are others, but they overwhelmingly control the market. And 84% of all music revenue is subscription-based. Wow. Number two is physical. Number three is like digital tracks. So what was the behemoth for a while is, is even fading. Mm -hmm. um, that and that to me is a a loss for the music industry mm -hmm. that could have looked very different but they chose to fight it and they've had to abdicate power mm -hmm. to two players that they didn't like that they didn't want to work with for a long time mm -hmm. and they've sort of permanently lost that market because now it's like you pay your monthly subscription like if you stop being an apple you know apple music customer spotify customer mm -hmm. you lose everything yeah yeah so perpetuation of the of those models i think is largely here to stay maybe not forever yeah. but certainly for a long time and the music industry's finances are nowhere near what they used to look like and that's that's the analogy i think for insurance is like when customers are signaling to us that they don't like what we're offering them or mm -hmm. how we're offering it what are we doing and the the analog i used with you is like on the agency side mm -hmm. there are plenty of agents who 
are very worried about getting disintermediated, which mm -hmm. I completely understand. Mm -hmm. Their answer to that is to block any digitization or any direct communication between the carrier and the insured because they don't want a risk of something pulling their customer away. Mm -hmm. That to me is like what the music industry tried to do. Customers Man. are saying, I need to do this. And you're telling me no, because I want to justify my position in here. I don't think that's the right answer. Yeah. And I don't think that's going to keep you from getting disintermediated. I think it's going to guarantee you're disintermediated or at least that someone jumps ship to another agent who's willing to let them work the way they want to work. Yeah. And I think that's the morning we all need to take. There has to be some level of compromise that, um, that leads to the benefit of the consumer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I totally agree, man. I, I can tell you, I remember, I, I remember it was so painful to pay the 99 cents for the, the Apple after getting it for free, right? After getting yeah. it for free. Oh my God. I was like, I'm never going to pay at, do Apple music. And then, uh, Spotify at one point was free. Yeah. And I remember the transition from, from when, when you, ha it was free to when you had to pay and it was a very painful process. Yeah. But, um, I mean, I use Spotify every day. I don't even think about the, how right. much I pay for the subscription. So good. And it probably, it's good value at this yeah. point, like 10 bucks a month or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Like obviously that could be a lot of money to a lot of people and they do still have a free option. It's just much more limited in functionality, mm -hmm. but we like music is such a part of our life. I can't imagine most people who are subscribers to these things ever being like, no, that's the one I'll cut. Maybe it's one of the like 17 video subscription services that you woke up with at the end of the <laughs> yeah. COVID. That, like, Peacock. Yeah. Like now you're like, <laughs> okay, do I really need that one? I know it's only $4.99. But, uh -huh. um, but you know what? Like I shared with you a story of an agent uh, who was really insistent on delivering a check on claims to their insured because they want to be the savior. And that normally adds time to what could have been an electronic and fairly instantaneous payment. But then when COVID hit, the carrier I was talking to that was dealing with this, they had to have, you know, someone like handle the claim and come to a, a decision on the value and then do the, you know, issue the payment. But then someone else would have to come in and they couldn't be in the office at the same time mm. to actually like print the check. And then the head of claims had to come in to sign the check, couldn't be there at the same time. So now we're three days on from the date that the claim is is valued and accepted, mm -hmm. or settled. Mm -hmm. And then someone else has to come in to mail the check, can't be in the office. So now we're four days just to get the like approved settlement in the mail to then go to the agent for the agent to then drive out to the insured. So they were seeing from the approval of the value of the claim to actually the insured getting the money, not even clearing in their bank, but just getting the check mm -hmm. it was two to three weeks. Mm -hmm. And if you're a small business, especially during those lockdowns, you may not be in business anymore. Yeah. If you're, if you're a homeowner or you're like most Americans don't even have a thousand dollars of savings. If you had to wait three weeks to get money that you were due mm -hmm. when you've been paying your premium because an agent wanted to ensure that they got to be the hero, I think they don't even realize they just ended up the villain. Mm -hmm. um, that's the kind of thing that, I think we need to say, why, why am I inserting myself in this moment when I could maybe interact differently and let them get paid digitally instantly? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, can I still be the hero, even if I'm, I'm not the one handing them the money? I think you can, you just have to be willing to recognize like they wanted instant payment and I'm actually standing in the way of that. So I'm not the hero anymore, but yeah. that takes humility. 
Um, so it's, it's an interesting moment where I think we can all sort of look at ourselves and be like, am I the hero I think I am? Or is that pursuit of heroism actually turning me into the villain here? Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. And that process you described sounds so painful and unnecessary, but I do think that as human beings, we get used to the processes and change is something that. And I get it. Like everyone likes giving people money. Mm -hmm. You know, like I, I totally understand where it came from. And there was a time that that was a great story. Mm -hmm. Um, that's not the world that we live in. And I appreciate there's still a part of the market where that is a great story. So sometimes people will push back and be like, well, my customers like this, my clients like this. Okay, maybe some of them do, or maybe all of them do, but the entire market doesn't. And with every passing day, less and less of the market likes that because one, customers are aging. And so a younger generation does want to see things more digitally, but also because everything else in their life has moved. Everything. Everything else in their life is digital. Mm-hmm. So they're getting trained every day to feel less comfortable with these moments of inserting friction because that's how you think you will justify your place in the equation. And at some point soon, it will not justify your place in the equation. It will make it a question mark. And that's what we in the industry need to realize and, mm-hmm. and maybe be more flexible in how we answer that customer demand. It needs to happen. It needs to happen because from it's and it's super exciting from the customer perspective because like, Everything's getting easier. Everything's getting better. Everything is more simplified. And uh, I think the folks in the insurance industry that adapt quickest will will be the biggest beneficiaries of the uh, the market that wants all that. That's that's coming. So, Brian, when we when you talk about um, figuring out how insurance companies can pivot and uh, be more customer centric, I know that that's kind of like point number one in your description of how companies can innovate, right? Can you talk about like your formula for innovation? Like if I'm a insurance agency owner, I'm listening to this and I want to innovate for the future to be as optimized as I can possibly be. What is the formula for doing that? Um, so I don't know if this is uh, this is like foolproof works everywhere and I've got all the right answers because I don't. But okay. the thing that I think is a really safe starting place is, like you said, it's um, and I put this in my first book is like the first major takeaway that I think we all need to start with is recognizing customers hold the answer. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean you speaking for them is the same thing as them. So, like, you know, a lot of a lot of time I hear, well, we know that our customers this or our customers, they might say that, but they really mean this. No, you need to learn how to ask the question if you think they say one thing and mean another, but you have to let them tell you what they really want and you need to be out there asking. And that's not the same thing as presuming it for them. I would say like, they're not a puppet on your hand and you're actually the one doing the talking. You have to let them speak. Mm-hmm. And and there's kind of an extension to that, that your frontline employees, they're listening to your customers every day. And they're living with the uh, the impact of the frustrations and the friction, either internally or externally, because they're getting the customers when they're frustrated or they're having to help them through things that could be done differently. Mm-hmm. So listen to your customers, but also layer in from your people, because your people are the, your front line every day hearing this too. Um, and through that very like outside in kind of mindset, you start to discover where you could make change. But like, None of it is possible when you put up walls or you presume that you know better or you have the answer. Um, you know, I share a story about a carrier who had done, they were building something uh, around like 
I think it was like how to keep their customers apprised on claims uh, claims progress. And this is going way back to like 2007, I think. This is a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but they ended up about halfway through the project of building this thing. They surveyed their customers and they asked like, how would you like to get updated on XYZ? And they listed like 10 different options. And basically like 80 something percent or even 90% of customers chose one option. And then the other nine got like, you know, single to less than single percentage. Cause there were thousands of people surveyed. It was a really big survey, but yeah. basically like no one wanted anything but the first pick. And the third thing on that list was what these guys were building. Okay. And, uh, and I, I was there in this meeting when they were talking about the project up to senior management. They're like, you know, we're building one of the top three things that customers are looking for. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, oh my God, no, you're not. Like there's like one or 2% maybe of people who said they were interested in this, but like 90% told you the answer, mm-hmm. but because you already had an answer, you're then spinning this whole thing. Mm-hmm. And of course they built it and no one liked it and no one cared and no one engaged in it. And they were like, we don't understand. Like our customers are so frustrating. We do what yeah. they're asking. I'm like, no, you didn't. Uh-huh. You weren't willing to listen and you had the answer in front of you. So like I said, with, you know, me not having all the answers, like you need to go into it the same way, ask your customers, listen to them and try to understand throughout their journey with you as they see it, what are the highs and lows and why? And we have this tendency to be like, well, what they don't understand is this thing over here has to happen this way. Or yeah, we can't do that because like, that's fine, but actually they don't care. Mm -hmm. So before you start explaining away, all of the things they're telling you, just accept what it is. And maybe you need some outside help, a different mindset or someone who's not inside your four walls that isn't living with this every day, who can sort of think more broadly um, or not have those constraints front and center for them. Cause it's hard to dream up new ideas when you're, you know, kind of tunnel vision on the constraints and the needs that you have right in front of you. I totally get that. Mm-hmm. Um, but be willing to have someone, maybe not even an insurance person, uh, ask a friend, your spouse, your, like your kids, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like, well, what would you think about this? Get some other perspectives in. And I think that's like, that openness is for me is the most important first step. And then how you solve for it. There's lots of answers for everything that comes up. It's mm-hmm. just a question of what the right one is for you, but I'm less interested in the technology mm-hmm. than I am the initial mindset. Cause that's when you define what it is you're trying to solve for, which is way more important than the specific tech or you know, solution that you, that you deploy. Brian, you studied uh, multiple carriers. You've been at multiple carriers. What area do you think insurance carriers are lagging behind in the most? Um, so I don't often talk about specific technology, but this is one where I think there are two key things that, and I talk about them because they're such critical enablers for everything else that we want to do. Um, first of all, I think we're now at a point where the decision to be on the cloud is extremely obvious doesn't mean it's obvious to everyone and it doesn't mean everyone's comfortable with it. But um, I was at a, a recent event where the CIO of the PNC business of USA was talking and they're implementing uh, a new cloud core system. And at their scale, almost $30 billion, you can imagine like that's a big project. And um, they made the decision a couple of years ago because they've been on the journey for a little bit. And um, their CIO, I, I got to interview her on stage, Mary Beth Eckert's her name. She's fantastic. But she was like, 
this was a foregone conclusion for us. We didn't even debate whether we should be looking at a cloud-based solution or not. And I said, you know, I think to a lot of people today, that might sound obvious, but I know to many it still doesn't. But two years ago, I still wasn't hearing that much of that. Hmm. And she said, well, we looked at the future and we looked at all the things we're going to have to do. And to do that with an on-premises solution that has a lot of constraints, um, isn't about flexibility and interoperability and extensibility and connection to different tools, was just so clear to us that if we're investing as many, as you can imagine, like hundreds of millions of dollars as they're going to have to, they can't do that in a way that locks them out. Because mm -hmm. so much of the opportunity and the things we're going to need to use may not even exist yet today. So if you're limiting your potential to connect to other solutions, you're sort of framing your business into a trap right off the bat. So for me, the first and foremost thing is you really do need to be on the cloud with your, your core operation. Mm -hmm. And that could be for carrier, you know, your core claims and policy and finance systems. Um, for an agent, your AMS or your broker management system, what have you, you really do need something that's cloud-based. And the reasons why are the second thing is around APIs. Mm. So application programming interface, our ability to connect to other things, whether it's data or solution providers or partners or new distribution channels or whatever, um, customer apps, like all kinds of things, if you can't connect to those things relatively easily and quickly, you're really in trouble. Mm -hmm. And to spin up API connections, and like there may be a, uh, IT folks who get really mad at me for this, but it's not hard. Doesn't mean it doesn't take skill and knowledge and maybe some time, but it's rarely as hard as we tend to turn it into. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's the other piece of it is like, you need to be able to connect and you need to have a suite of good modern APIs, but your people also need to be able to do that work and do it rapidly mm -hmm. because the speed of APIs is a rapid story. It's agile. So um, you need the tech to provide it, but you also need to invest in your people and make sure that your people have the technical skills, but also like the structural and um, kind of operational support to be able to turn these things around quickly. You can't have like two APIs you need to tap into, take six months to do. Mm -hmm. That's not acceptable. Um, so to, to be able to be as nimble as these tools are, you need to make sure that your people are able to do that. And what I would say if that sounds impossible is if you asked your staff, would you like to be able to iterate and innovate and push out new stuff quickly? I'm pretty sure their answer isn't going to be, no, we want it to take 18 months in every case. Like they want to do this stuff fast and they want to have fun with it. And I think it'll help reinvigorate them around their work. And that extends out to the whole operation. So to me, this is like, it seems scary or it seems really big, but I think it's like a first domino falling kind of moment for insurers and mm -hmm. agents and anyone who's, who needs to do this for them to have that point of like, uh, this is actually really cool. This is really exciting. And it's not as hard as we thought it would be. Mm -hmm. um, that's a great feeling to have in your operation. Seriously, that is an excellent starting point. You spent some time uh, at an InsureTech and um, researching the InsureTech world, and it was a big topic in your book. Um, what do you think, like, the, the insurance firms that have been around for a long time what do you think that those firms can learn from the insurtech world? Um, I think there's a few things. And uh, I think it, it starts with kind of a, a willingness and a comfort 
around failing. Um, and certainly like not every insure tech or startup is like that, but for most of them, you hear stories of like, we, you know, we did 10 things and nine of them, like we did them wrong and we, they went nowhere, but the one thing that went right, went right in a big way. And that pushed us ahead. Um, you never get to that one thing if you're not willing to try and play around and be wrong and learn and adjust. So I think that flexibility um, and comfort with failure is really important. And what I think is fascinating is like one of the last claims that I approved um, was north of $10 million. Wow. Before I left Hiscox. And that was, you know, it's not that anyone liked that. Like that wasn't like, oh, great. You know, we're so happy to pay out so much money. Mm -hmm. um, and it didn't feel good because it was like, it was a class action thing. And so we knew a huge chunk of change was going to the plaintiff's bar. Like it didn't feel good, but it also didn't feel like, oh no, we're going to go out of business now. Mm -hmm. Like there was no discussion about whether we could survive this. That was like one of the last things I did. Then I go to a startup and it's like, I remember one of our uh, customer success people who made these like videos to help teach people how to use our stuff. Um, he wanted to get a new iMac so that he could produce these videos faster and you know more powerful processor and wanted like a mic and all this stuff because we had a little room that we could turn into a studio mm -hmm. and i remember in the leadership team like the emails going around me like okay it's 2300 bucks um you know do we really need to do this and, and i was just like you know the the difference mm -hmm. um first on the scale of the dollars but also actually that really did matter because like we spend that it's like okay well knock that off of your runway because that's you know twenty three hundred dollars you no longer have in capital to pay your people or your rent or whatever yep um yet we were willing to take those chances mm -hmm. we were willing to try things you know like do a hackathon and let the developers not produce any code that's going to go live mm -hmm. to see what we could possibly come up with and you know, almost everything that came out of that hackathon, as cool as it was, and we did them every quarter, um, almost everything went nowhere. But a couple of things went somewhere mm -hmm. in a pretty cool way. I mean, like we came out with some really interesting things that, so that, those came out in 2019. I was just at a conference, people who are using it, and they're still talking about that functionality today. Cool. Like it's like game changer. But we wouldn't have found that if we weren't willing to basically like waste 24 hours of our entire engineering staff's time. <laughs> plus pizza and burritos or whatever else they got. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think that that's pretty rare. Mm -hmm. So that willingness, just like we need to play around and we need to try and not constrain people. Um, that's that's a huge lesson to learn. And I'm not sure every, every carrier really would be willing to think that way. Mm -hmm. If you were a kid that was coming out of college and you were looking to get in the insurance world, would you choose an insure tech? like a startup or would you choose yeah. like a longstanding domestic carrier or yeah. insurance agency? Right. Um, well, I think, I think it's super situational. It depends on the person. And you know, like if you were studying tech, then like, yeah, maybe an insure tech makes more sense. Mm -hmm. I think the reality is actually they're all really valuable paths for mm -hmm. very different reasons. And so, and this is tough when you're like, 21 years old, because you have no clue who you are or who you're going to be one day. Um, but instead of thinking like, well, what's this job versus that job is think about where do I want to go with this? Like if I want to be a startup -y kind of person or a tech person, then the insure tech sounds like it would be a better fit. Mm -hmm. If I want to be, if I want to be making change in an industry, 
I think the carrier might be the better path because you're going to get such a grounding in what insurance is and how it works. Mm -hmm. And that, that will serve you whether you continue down the, the, uh, you know, the carrier path, you could go to an insure tech and come with that knowledge of the industry. I mean, that's how I did it. Like that was invaluable Mm -hmm. to be able to share that perspective with the rest of the team. Um, and if you go down the agent path, I think a lot of things are still open to you. I do think you're going to be more distribution focused, mm-hmm. which could still be an insure tech story. Oh yeah. Um, but you know, are you going to go from an agency to a carrier? Possibly, mm-hmm. probably not, but possibly like if you just look at the numbers of people who do that, it's less, it's less common, mm-hmm. um, which certainly could, uh, but there's like this, I think it's very early days for agent tech. There is a lot that's being talked about though. And there's a massive need and going back to our whole, like, handing the check over and, you know, standing in the way versus enabling a new customer experience, that's all agent tech. So like the tools that are going to enable agents getting to stay in the mix and thrive and provide real value, Mm -hmm. uh, not because they've forced themselves in there, but because they genuinely deserve to be there and have the means to do it. That's the kind of stuff that still needs to be developed and delivered. And so like maybe starting in an agency is a great way to go down that path because you never really get what the solutions are unless mm-hmm. you've lived the problem yourself. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really an open door and I, I hate answers like that. It's like, so you basically gave us nothing, Brian. <laughs> but um, I think it comes down to what you're willing to make it. Yeah, and, yeah. You should know where you want to head. Right, and, and I think getting started and gaining as much knowledge as you can, it, there's no downside to it. Um, mm-hmm. I know personally from my own journey, I started at... Uh, ACE, which was, you know, large domestic carrier and the perspective I got there. I mean, first of all, I mean, if you were in place with a training program, that's phenomenal, right? That, right. right. That's, that's a really cool place to start. And that's a benefit that I had starting out, but I also started out at a massive, massive company. Yeah. And then it was definitely for me, a breath of fresh air starting up evolve with my brother and getting into a startup environment. Cause it was so different but it was so exciting and, and, but I don't know if I would have had the appreciation of the startup environment unless I had the experience at the, the big bureaucratic domestic carrier. Yeah. So there's, there's wins on both sides. And I mean, even if, yeah. even if you started the opposite way, your perspective of bringing, bringing that startup ab- attitude to a, a larger company, I mean, I think there's a, a huge win there as well. Yeah, a hundred percent. And that's why like ultimately, all the paths are viable paths. It's just a question of how you're going to engage with it. Because mm-hmm. there are people who go the big carrier route and like that's where they, you know, they stay there for 30 years or whatever. And like they're in the cubicle farm or whatever mm-hmm. the modern equivalent of it is. And that's fine. But just understand that. Like if that's not what you really wanted, make sure you go in with the right sense. Because the last thing you want to do is to wake up in your 30s, 40s, 50s, whenever it is and be like, how did I get here? Why oh, yeah. am I doing this? You know? Yeah. Seriously. It's really scary. Yeah. Know? Yeah. I know. I know. Just auditing what you're doing, why you want to do it, how you want to do it. I think it's, yeah. man, it's, um, people are in more control of their destiny than I think that they often realize. So I think that that's a cool part of this podcast because we can shine so many lights on different parts of the industry. And that's why I think you're such a cool guest because you've had that experience and, you know, you can kind of show people, the, the benefits and where the industry, the, tra- the trajectory of the industry is going. Um, so 
Anyways, I think that's great though. I, I love the, the insight and advice for those coming out of college. Um, is there any insure techs that are on your radar that you think are going to have like a massive dramatic game changing impact um, over the next couple of years that you think they're, they're doing it right. So they will have yeah. the biggest change. Um, so I like, I get this question, especially with uh, you know, I put out a book with like all these insure techs, people are like, who's your favorite? Yeah. And so I was like, okay, I'm like, I love all my kids. It's not like, <laughs> yeah, but there's, there's one that I do tend to focus on because I think, um, and, and frankly, like they're all in the book because they have some material advantage. So they deserve, they deserve the success that they're having mm-hmm. um, and they deserve to be watched. But there's one in particular that what they're doing differently is so profound. We really haven't seen this level of shift since honestly the 1950s. I don't know whether they'll succeed or not in this branch insurance. I don't mm. know whether they're going to ultimately succeed or not. They're doing well. They just did a huge raise, like 218 million, I think. Wow. Um, in the summer, which is like in this environment is wild. But they do a lot of things they talk about, and those are all great. Like their tech, their ability to use third party data and how they quote, like it's really impressive. Mm-hmm. But the thing they don't really talk about, or they call it bundling, which is like, well, that's nothing new. We've been bundling forever. Mm-hmm. Don't, they don't bundle, they entangle, which mm. sounds terrible. And mm-hmm. I like, you no know, agents like, oh, do you want me to entangle your policies? Like that doesn't sound like something someone would want to buy. Yeah. But what it's speaking to is um, it's actually in the capital allocation. They go about setting up capital for exposure completely differently from how the industry does it. Um, it's fascinating. It's not easy to follow, but it also could make them so much more dramatically or dramatically more capital efficient than anyone else in the industry hmm. that that could be just a massive unlock, like 20, 30, 40 percent more capital efficient, which translates to 20, 30, 40 percent lower premium mm-hmm. uh, without sacrificing profit. Wow. So, that's fascinating. And the last time we saw that was in the 1950s when the modern homeowners product came onto the market from actually Ace with like a forebearer of it with INA, mm-hmm. um, where it was like you used to buy all these separate policies to create protection for your home. And then they came out with the modern HO policy, right? Like it has your fire and your dwelling and your like theft, like all of the components that you need but you get it from one carrier on one capital base rather than having to pay, you used to buy three or four policies from different carriers because they were all monoline. Mm-hmm. Each one had its, its expense load and there's duplication in that. So ACE or INA was able to be like, um, I'm not gonna remember the numbers now, but it's in the book, but it was something like 80% cheaper mm-hmm. by creating all, and they sold five-year policies back then. Yeah. But it was like absurdly cheap relative to what you were buying and within like three or four years the entire market had moved wow. um, that's why branch stands out to me i don't know that the market can move that easily because it's such a fundamental change in the capital regime of the industry but if they're successful um if they prove that out to be genuine and it has the ramifications i think it could that's a massive game changer so like that's the one i'm i'm probably watching the closest because i think it's just fascinating mm-hmm. and it's not to discount anything else but like that's that's a mega mega shift mm-hmm. in the whole nature of how insurance works i'm excited to see where it goes I, the, yeah, I the other area that i i know uh, we have a lot of listeners that are retail insurance brokers 
I wanted to ask, where do you see the role of the retail agent going in the next five years ago? Excuse me, excuse um, me, in the next five years. Yeah. Well, so I, I've never been one for like agents and brokers are dead. And that's the story I got literally my first day on the job at Liberty Mutual. Like, ah. Did you hear about this internet thing? It's all agents will be gone tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And, and actually like, yeah, there's been, there's been a shift in the percentage of the market and personal lines. It's agent versus direct, but not the wiping out of the agency channel. And it's been fairly consistent in the 40 something percent range. So I think there's a floor to that. So I don't think agents go away. And obviously the more complex the risk moving into commercial lines, you see them even stronger. And it's not because there aren't direct options. I worked at one of them, um, you know, there's success in direct, but it's still not really changing the game when it comes to needing to have that local expertise and, and true like insurance expertise for your business. Mm-hmm. And I think that's to the story is if you can find a way to deliver that expertise um, that fits in with people's needs for a lighter customer journey, a more digital customer journey when they want it to be, Mm -hmm. but still having the human when they need the human and having the expertise and the guidance when they need it. Mm -hmm. Finding a way to strike that balance, um, I think is the story. And I think that doesn't really change what an agent is. Mm -hmm. I think it gives them some room to be more consultative and advisory and get into a little bit more of like being, so your, your risk expert helping mm-hmm. you think about minimizing your risk rather than being transactional. Um, and I'm not saying people are trying to be transactional today, but when you have to do everything in the process, you can't help it because you spend 60% of your time or whatever it is. I mean, actually there's studies that it's around two thirds of, of an agent's time is spent on the, like the procedural operational like, stuff. Yeah. Administrative stuff. I'm not surprised. So what if we could change that? And yeah, you could do, two thirds more business. Oh yeah. You could do 50% more business, but serve everyone much differently, much more hands-on without taking a second more of your day. I think that's fascinating. And I like, I would love that kind of agent. I agree. I think everybody wins too. Cause then you get a little bit more of a a relationship enhancement between the, the, um, insured and between the broker. And then the broker has more time to, to bring in more business and, and nobody really likes doing the administrative advisor. stuff. What's right. that? I mean, that's what I have with my financial advisor. Mm-hmm. Um, because the platform has allowed things to be much more automated for him. My time with him, and he was always great, but like, we don't waste time on signing of things and whatever. It's the procedural stuff is handled by their platform. And when we dig in, like we schedule a half an hour and we spend an hour and a half, but really digging in on like strategically what do my finances mean to my life, to my retirement, to my family? Like that's a, I, I, I can't even imagine moving to someone else. Mm-hmm. Cause he's so like, he's become so critical to how I think about my financial health. Um, and that's because we don't spend our time on the procedural. We spend our time on the substantive. And yeah. I like, I know agents would rather be able to spend their time doing that. So what if we could facilitate it? Mm-hmm. That is a great point to, I think, kind of wrap up the conversation here, Brian. I really appreciate you spending some time with me today. Um, if someone was interested in consulting with you or um, learning more or potentially having you speak, is there a good place for them to find you? Yeah, I think the best place for everything is future-of-insurance.com. That's okay. 
books, podcasts, like, and you can get to everything else from there as well. Um, but always like, I want, I put out a lot of stuff for free. I'd love people just to engage in it. The more yeah, people are talking yeah. about this stuff and sharing it with, with those around them, it's better for all of us. So yeah, future-of-insurance.com. Yeah, sweet. I wish there were no dashes, but future of insurance is already taken. So I needed the dashes. Sometimes you got to have the dashes. You I know. You got to have the dashes. You know, it's funny. YouTube just came out and I think they, they allowed us to put in handles. handles. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so... I think, I, and I forget what exactly we were able to get for the podcast. I was hoping we were going to get Evolved Broker at Evolved Broker. So yeah, we'll, we'll see what we get there. Um, I tried to just get at insurance or at InsureTech. Oh yeah. Were Did you, they were, were they taken? Yeah. yeah well, I'm sure someone paid a tremendous amount for uh-huh. at least insurance. Like Google has learned how valuable insurance AdWords are. So uh-huh. I'm sure that they were like, oh, we can sell this one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, cool, Brian. We always end with five rapid-fire questions that you can Let's do it. You can answer quickly. You can take some time yeah. on them. Um, but to jump in, the f- first question I, that I have is: Is there a specific individual that you've come across in the insurance world, maybe separate from the insurtech question? But is there an individual that you would bet on to disrupt the insurance world? Almost like you know, you, maybe you consider Elon Musk disrupting the car industry, is there an individual that you would point to in the insurance world that you think is most likely? That's a really tough question. I don't know that I have an answer. It's all good. It's all good. Maybe that person hasn't emerged yet. Maybe they haven't. I I mean, like, I think Evan Greenberg was. um, My old boss. He certainly was disruptive. Yeah, he was disruptive. Um, Mm -hmm. Now I'm, I'm, think that's done like not that these failed but i think he's done what he's going to do and he's he's not interested in the minute disruption that i think actually could fuel real change Mm -hmm. so i would say maybe steve leckis and joe emerson the two guys behind branch but we'll see okay question number two this is a personal question uh, about our our mutual connections what is the funniest thing that you can remember about my brother-in-law mike inkalingo while working at his cox (laughs) So I didn't have an issue with this, but I think some people did. He, he was always on a headset, on a call, walking around the office back and forth. And I'm, this sounds weird. I'm like mm. a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Uh-huh. Like my vision is triggered by movement. Yeah. So if anyone's walking around me, I immediately turn and look. So uh-huh. I, there's like a glass wall conference rooms yeah. in the yeah. San Francisco office. And he'd just keep pacing. And so I, like, I would constantly be turning my head mm-hmm. as Mike would walk by in both directions. But yeah, so <laughs> it's, he's always pacing around. Hey, getting, getting his steps in. I'll give him that. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to mess with him about that. That's yeah. super funny. Um, okay, so you worked in San Francisco and now you are in Boston. I, I never worked in San Francisco. I would visit from time to time. Gotcha. But yeah, I mean, I did work while I was there, but I wasn't based there. Okay, okay. Um, I'm actually, I'm planning to come out to Boston for St. Patrick's Day. Oh, cool. Uh, is there, do you have a favorite restaurant in Boston? Uh, I'm vegan and my wife has uh, an autoimmune condition. So mm-hmm. like we rarely go out and the kind of place I would suggest, like people who would come to Boston for St. Patrick's Day would probably yeah. not be interested in, <laughs> although a lot of their food is very green. Hey, we, a lot of pale, yeah, but- we, we probably have some vegan listeners out there. Yeah. Um, there's a chain around Boston called Life Alive Cafe that's um, it's really good, healthy food, and it's tasty. Great. Um, so, yeah, I'll go with that. But people are like, what's wrong with this show sucks? Like, I don't want to <laughs> be interested in this. 
<laughs> no, it's all good. It's all good. I, I know I could definitely have more, uh, more greens in my diet. Um, okay. My final question for you here, Brian, is um, what do you think is the most exciting thing that the insurance world has to look forward to in 2023? Ooh. Um, well, so I think uh, we're going to start to see the the fruits of a lot of the digitization labors over the past couple of years. And so there's a possibility for us to start putting these things together mm-hmm. in a really effective way. We're getting data from lots of disparate, like unrelated things from all the different point solutions we've deployed. I think it'd be really interesting in 2023 if we started to look at all that data and say, well, what does it like holistically tell us? Mm-hmm. Not like what does it tell us about the claim that we were getting them to take pictures with their phone on, but when we add that together with the way they bought their policy and they're paying it and the service interactions and all the different things that are spitting out data because people are doing it digitally. What does that tell us about the individual and how could we serve them better? And could we spot needs that they have? Because we now have this data based view of them in so many different aspects of their life. Um, I think that's fascinating. I don't think it's 2023 because I don't think people are ready to do that yet, but it could be. Um, I mean, I know a few carriers who have done enough digitization that, and I can think of a couple of solution providers that could do something with that information. We could see something. I just, I think it's probably more like uh, insurance speed, like 2027, but it could be 2023. Okay. Let it be. All right. All right. Cool. Brian, you're the man. Thank you again for taking the time with me today. And, uh, I look forward to catching up in person again. It's such a small insurance world. Yes. Um, yeah. For everybody listening, like I, we, we just, we looked, we, we looked up Brian based on all of his accolades and his credentials and, and the books that he wrote. And I had no idea that we had those common connections. Um, you didn't know I'm vacationing with your dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So funny. So, um, I'm spending a lot more time in Dallas. So if you're ever out in Dallas, uh, we should definitely link up and, uh, would love to grab a drink, grab coffee, grab uh, dinner or something. Um, because grab some kale, <laughs> grab some kale, like, you know, there's that. I feel like the, and quinoa. <laughs> you know, we have a, we have, we're probably going to go to lunch after this at this restaurant called Freshy down the street, which is, you know, Oh yeah. Yeah. Good salads. So, yep. um, cool. Well, yeah. Sounds good, Brian. I will, uh, I'll plan on talking to you soon. Again, I think, I think actually it would be good to maybe do like a rerun of maybe in 2023, like another episode based on what's going down and if there's any wrinkles that have happened. If that's sure. something that yeah, you're interested in. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. All right. Nice game. Cool. Well, Brian, I'll, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Be well. Thanks. Please download, subscribe, and leave a review on whatever platform you are listening on. And feel free to reach out to me at pat at evolvedbrokerpodcast.com with any comments or suggestions for the podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by First Insurance Funding. First is the leading premium finance company in insurance and is known throughout the industry for their personalized service and quote flexibility. If you're tired of sending quote requests for smaller premiums to multiple companies, not leaving enough time to negotiate larger opportunities, then choose First as your primary financing source and experience the first difference today. 